You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 360 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Machek Mensfield is a software architect. He has experience in a wide variety of business applications built using multiple Ruby frameworks. He is particularly interested in code quality assurance and OSS supply chain security. He is an active OSS contributor and maintainer of various projects, including Karafka and Diffend. Welcome to the show, Machek. Hello, welcome everyone. Machek, what is your developer origin story? Uh, I would say that it's pretty much a typical story of a, of a young boy that was just fascinated with, with electronics. Every single kid at that time had an NES copy uh, in Poland called Pegasus at home. Uh, but it wasn't until I got my first PC when I was around 12, I, I think, uh, that things just clicked for me. I started learning HTML and CSS, uh, and by saying learning, I just mean making things with Microsoft front page and trying to understand what, what is under the hood of it. Uh, then still in middle school, uh, I think I, I started making designs for uh, Allegro. Allegro is an equivalent of, of Amazon in Poland. Uh, with that, I earned enough money to buy real books about coding and again, uh, real books mean HTML for dummies at that time. Uh, and meanwhile, my computer science teacher from my middle school introduced us to uh, AC Logo. It is an ed- educational programming language designed by uh, Seymour Puppert from, I, I think from MIT. Uh, and it was the moment that I noticed that you can make computers not only display things, but you can make them do things and it's not uh, rocket science or magic it, it, it's i figured out it's uh, actually quite easy uh, but for me the real breakthrough happened uh, in high school at the moment i knew what i want to do with my life i went to a school with a really strong emphasis on stem subjects Uh, Computer science was taught by a horrible pedagogue, but an amazing teacher. Uh, (laughs) The scope of things we've covered in in three years in high school was just enormous for me. Uh, We we did algorithms, we did numerical systems, we did Horner's method for uh, polynomial evaluation, SQL, PHP, and we we finished with uh, writing software that would matrixes built with uh, based on pointer-based arrays and, you know, displaying the 3D animated outcome of it. So that was pretty much it. After high school, uh, I was certain that I want to to continue with IT. I wanted to go, uh, I wanted to study. I had to do part-time studies because I couldn't afford studying uh, full-time. I found my first job like everyone at that time in PHP. Uh, and uh, somewhere around first year, uh, uh, one of my friends introduced me to Ruby and he showed me the pre 1.0 version of Rails and why I was stunned. And the reason why I was surprised is that I built my own content management system in PHP. And if you'd compare 
the amount of effort I had to, I had to, the amount of work I had to do to achieve things that were super easy with Rails, that was 90% more work for me in PHP. So I dropped all of that and never looked back. That is so interesting. How do you think your life would be different if you could have afforded full-time study? Uh, I think it would be the same because I switched. Uh, oh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, after first year, when I had a more or less stable, stable job, I decided to switch to full-time studying. Uh, the university in, in Krakow, the Technological University of, of Krakow or Krakow University of Technology uh, is very understanding towards people that um, try to study and work at the same time. So I could skip certain lectures. I would slide a bit on some of the things, but to be honest, it was, it was doable. And uh, yeah, I, one problem that I had, usually you study for five years, I studied for seven. <laughs> uh, but in the end, it was a really good decision. So you've really carved a portion of the community out with all of your security insights, and it really seems like security has been a focus in your career. So why is that? Uh, so I, I've always seen a security as a part of a quality assurance cycle. Uh, there is a great book about programming that is completely not about programming called uh, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by uh, Robert M. Piercyk. And what he said in this book is that quality and care are just two sides of the same coin. If you care, you end up with quality of whatever you do, whether it's you know woodworking, programming or anything else. So for me, it was just natural to try to incorporate security practices into my development flow. And it's uh, it was just running alongside what people consider as a standard um, quality, assurance uh, quality assurance practices. Is that how you landed at Castle? Uh, no. <laughs> so uh, it took me actually a while uh, to get to Castle. Uh, for people that don't know, Castle is an account protection platform uh, that takes a lot of data, does a lot of data science stuff to detect uh, digital risks and uh, power the, the threat response in real time. Mm. We can get to that, how I got into Castle, but before that, I've been involved in a in couple other projects in a couple other companies. I always try to build up this um, quality internal quality assurance toolkit that I could take with me based on open source solutions and based on uh, you know scripts and, and things that I could I could build for myself. Uh, and at some point many years ago, I I thought that maybe I could wrap it up, make it into a, a executable container and uh, and ship it as a product. I tried that. It was called Koditsu, and it failed. <laughs> uh, lesson learned. The reason why it failed, I think, is because it was I was trying to do too many things. But good thing though, uh, one of my friends that was helping me helping me build this Tomek uh, Tomek worked at Castle at that time, and he was using Koditsu in Castle. Uh, Castle also used some of my other open source software solutions. So it, it was just kind of natural for us to cooperate at some point. They were using my software. I would apply patches for them. 
So why not make it into a bigger cooperation? That is so interesting. So from the lessons that you learned on your last project, is that where Diffin.io came from? Uh, yeah. So many of the many of the things that I I have in, in Defend actually come from Koditsu conceptually. I'm not saying it's I, that I was able to copy paste the code base, but conceptual ideas, certain solutions and the way of thinking. Uh, it all comes from from Koditsu. So if you have a startup and it's failing, don't worry, it might turn out it's just not doing exactly the right thing, but you might end up reusing a lot of knowledge you've learned. So with this new project, Defend.io, did you take a simpler approach? I wouldn't call it simpler. I would say I narrowed the scope. So what could it say, I try to encapsulate all of the quality assurance you could have, uh, which is code quality assurance, documentation uh, quality assurance, security quality assurance, and a couple other things. And it was just too much. I know many, many companies look at expanding their offer so that, so they can sh sell something to a company and it is supposed to solve all of their problems. But for me, it was dead end. And with, with, with different, I decided to focus only on the security aspect of, uh, open source supply chain and in, in general security. So why should developers use it? Uh, so to be honest, if you're using rubygems.org, and if you're a Ruby developer, then you're already using it. And I'm not referring here to the review changes button from every single rubygems.org uh, gem website, but rather uh, to the fact that all of my security findings are immediately visible for all of the RubyGems security team members. So in a way, by using RubyGems, you are being affected by the different presence in the Ruby ecosystem. And being more, more serious, uh, Defend works differently than other security tools on the market. So it hooks up really early in the development cycle. Uh, that is even before any of the gems are, are being downloaded to a developer's machine. Uh, and the reason for it is because how Ruby gems and bundler work, downloading a gem means giving it all of the control over your machine. Uh, to an extent of, of user under which it runs. And if you're a sane person, you probably want to know that the code that is going to run on your machine is not going to be harmful in, in any way. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. How did you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They then use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data on to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is ExpressVPN? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. 
and ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com ruby, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com ruby. Thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting the show. I love that you phrased it as if you are a sane person. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a like paranoid myself about security stuff, and uh, sometimes I think about how much open source do we run, and do we, we how much open source we actually allow to run, especially if you use Linux. Uh, and when I think about it, it's just amazing that we don't have many more uh, security issues in the Ruby community and in general in open source uh, community because the amount of open source is just tremendous. I agree with you. I think we hear a lot of scary stories coming out of the JavaScript community and other communities. So that makes total sense. I do have to ask you, the developer toolset market out there is pretty wide. There are a lot of people trying to sell important tools to developers, and there's definitely an art to it. So I have to ask, why is this valuable service that you're providing free? Uh, so I, I thought you were going to ask, why is it free? <laughs> and the, well, so there are actually a couple, couple of reasons to, to use Defend and why it is free. First of all, it's a way of, of me saying thank you to the community. I spent many years with Ruby community. I love it. I love people that are the community. And uh, to be honest, I just cannot imagine finding uh, problems and vulnerabilities in open source supply chain and not reporting them to RubyGems security team. Uh, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel, it wouldn't feel right for me. Uh, and Defend is an early stage research project. I'm not saying that at some point, uh, there's not going to be some paid features to keep the platform going. Uh, but at that point, all I need is data, uh, data samples and more users. Uh, the better I understand the ecosystem, the better job I can do in protecting it. Uh, on top of all of that, it's, uh, Anonymous. I don't collect any data that like IPs or uh, credentials to private gems repositories, anything like that. It, it's being stripped away before it's being sent to defend. So if someone is worried about exposing anything to defend, I collect data that is valuable for me, but it, that shouldn't be any of an, any threat to uh, the companies that decide to use it. That makes sense. So where are the opportunities there for developers to be able to help along this project? It sounds like using it will help you in your research, but are there any opportunities to contribute to it? Uh, not at the moment. There, there, there are a couple of reasons why it isn't yet open source. First of all, one of the biggest reasons is just time. In order to make something open source, you need to have really good documentation. You should have uh, in-code documentation CI setup, things that will help developers uh, develop the platform. And that's if we're referring to, to the plugin. And if we're referring to the platform, what is really tricky about security is if I would publish all of my heuristics, all of my solutions and engines, it would be much, much, much easier for uh, 
hackers to design attacks that would slip through all of the security layers. And I'm not saying that security by obscurity is the thing you should go with, but it would definitely be bad people would definitely benefit. And I'm not talking only about Ruby community because you could apply the same uh, algorithms and approach to other technologies and then come up with ways of injecting malicious code that would be really hard to detect. That makes sense. Well, I want to compliment you on the blog that you're currently running because you have a lot of really great security focused articles. So I'd love to touch upon a couple of the articles that you've written in the past. So the first Saul, you have an article where you discuss how you can take over a Ruby gem. Can you talk about that a little bit? That, that really depends on what you mean by that. This title, and uh, it also refers to my Ruby Kaigi uh, presentation that I gave two years ago, has two meanings. Uh, the first one refers to taking an ownership of a gem. And the second one refers to make to taking ownership by malicious mal, for malicious reasons or by malicious means. And to be honest, I don't think uh, it was the best title ever uh, <laughs> because too many people didn't did not read the talk description and went with this assumption that the whole talk is gonna be about uh, a gem handover process when you no longer want to maintain it. Uh, <laughs> That's so funny because I actually thought it was the latter. So maybe I'm secretly evil. I assumed it was the malicious one. <laughs> well, maybe that's because, you know, we're having an interview and you had a different mindset. But when I was in Japan, many people thought about the first one because at, at Ruby Kaigi, there, there's a variety of talks about many things and people just go with titles. So, uh, but yeah, so. If we're talking about taking uh, a Ruby gem ownership for malicious reasons, there are a couple ways to do it. Ruby gems data is more or less publicly available. So you can use some data mining. You can do some research to pinpoint gems that uh, are not getting enough attention, but that are, that are still popular. And you can use quality assurance tools to fake your effort. And once you, once you do that, you can uh, ask the, the current owner to give you release permissions and you can just do whatever you want. And that's one of the, one of the patterns that I've seen uh, happen in, in Node.js and PM community. I don't recall it happening for Ruby recently, but another way would be an ATO, which is an account takeover. If you're Fast enough, you can try to look into leaked credentials for you know email and passwords and try to take over uh, accounts of people that have gems. Many of the authors of Ruby gems published their email, so you can easily correlate this data and, and figure that out. Once you have an access, you can release your malicious gems into the public. You can also use semi taking over techniques like um, typo squatting, brand squatting, bit squatting to make people install gems that they didn't intend to. Are there different ways to mitigate that? Like, do you just, you need to be more cognizant of what you're installing and don't necessarily just install a gem because it has a friendly name? So I, I could say just use different, <laughs> but it, well, it's not, it's not gonna give, nothing's gonna give you 100% warranty on everything, but just, 
not having too many dependencies, not ending up with dependency hell, of being aware that including a gem brings its own costs and trying to keep up with all of the things that are happening with updates and having really sane policies, especially in a bigger organization, having really sane policies towards what we use, how we use it, when we decide to use it, when can we use it, and what what is the most important, when we decide to drop something, if it's become if it becomes unmaintainable, or if, if the owner is no longer interested in maintaining this library, we need to make a choice, right? Whether we take it over for non-malicious reasons and we keep up with the development or we run an assessment and uh, we incorporate the gem internals uh, into an in-house project. So having strict rules, even about what you add to, to your gem file is the first step for having good security. It's not going to protect you against everything because there are things like uh, the one that happened recently with, uh, what was the name? Microsoft came up with a name for this type of attack. It's surprising because I, I knew about it for a while, but no one gave, gave it a name or dependency confusion. So it wouldn't protect you from the dependency confusion attack, but it would protect you from, yeah, all of the attacks from 2020 actually that I know of, because I don't know about all of them. Probably. I don't want to think that there are many malicious packages still in Ruby gems, but you, you never know. I mean, I do know that what I, what I run is safe, but I cannot opt on every single package and every single ver version. Uh, yeah, I, I think I analyzed majority of the packages from at least like last five years, but you never know. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With the developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance concerns like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. So you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easier knowing that Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why Rails developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. Thank you to Scout APM for supporting the show. Yeah, so let's dig into that. So I, I do want to talk about how Ruby Gems doesn't allow for malicious packages then, because technically you could upload a malicious package to Ruby Gem. Is there a partnership between Ruby Gems and Diffn so that those things are stopped? How does that work? So I am part of the Ruby Gem security team. And whenever uh, a package is being uploaded, it, it's being assessed most of the time automatically. And packages that are interesting, and by saying interesting, it doesn't always mean malicious, but interesting means they present certain behaviors or they have certain characteristics that would that, that you don't normally see whether you you correlate this package with its previous versions or whether you correlate it with the general ecosystem standards, right? And then uh, if something like that happens, it's, it's being pinpointed. And if it's uh, 
Non-malicious weird activity, I tend to open issues on RubyGems. Like, hey, you're uploading vendor data uh, that makes your gem 5,000 times bigger instead of five kilobytes, it has 82 megabytes. You don't need this data. Or if it's malicious, we run a manual assessment. We check the source code, we see what it does. And if it's malicious, it, it gets removed. Do people tend to upload malicious packages knowing that they're doing so, or is it because they've included a malicious dependency themselves? Mm. So there is something I called accidental injection that I've seen happening in 2020, where people would upload things without being aware that they did this. And it, it happened a couple of times in 2020. I would contact the owners because the package, packages didn't look malicious, but when I extracted the content, uh, digged around in, in virtual machines, I would end up with seeing that, for example, it, it downloads a Bitcoin mining software, right? So I would contact an author that was legit and, and ask, hey, what the hell? And they would say, oh, I, I, I wasn't aware of it. It probably got into my computer, infected some files, and it got ended up being in the package that I shipped to RubyGems. Uh, and some people ship malicious code for private benefits, whether it's uh, gaining an access to servers, stealing bitcoins, you name it. How does Bundler factor in all of this? So RubyGems is, without deprecating its value, it's just a hosting for gems, more or less. And Bundler is the tool that glues the ecosystem together. You define your dependencies that you're interested in. You define the context in which uh, you want to have them, whether it's production, development, testing, uh, staging, whatever. And it is responsible for resolving the packages, which means um, figuring out which of the versions to use based on dependencies of jams and from what source to download it. So Bundler, uh, you can think of Bundler as a map, right? RubyGems provides you places where you can go. Uh, and Bundler is just a map that tells you how to get there. What should you do if you maintain private gems? Oh, that depends. That depends where you maintain them and how you maintain them. One of the things I would advise anyone that has uh, a private gem server like RubyGems uh, is to disable redirecting to RubyGems. What people tend to do, they set up a, a private gem server and they tell it mirror Ruby on Rails. So whenever I, uh, whenever Bundler is requesting a gem, if it's not private one that is uh, that was that would be found on the gem server, the gem server will ask RubyGems, "Hey, maybe you have this Rails version?" And well, RubyGems will say yes. Here we go, right? And what it, what it um, it creates a bit of a mess because. The way Bundler, the way Bundler redirects work is, Bundler doesn't care. So if you redirect it from your private gem server to Ruby RubyGems server, it will just follow the redirects, like you know, following a, a second page of a map. But it it can create security risks. So first of all, I would advise um, against having a, a proxy slash mirror setup for private gem servers. Just keep a private gem server server for your gems and keep Ruby gems for 
publicly available gems. There is a bit of a risk there. If Ruby gems goes down, you won't be able to deploy. There are ways to mitigate that, that as well. Uh, we don't have like two hours or five hours to handle that. But anyhow, keep this separation uh, and you should be fine. You can always book the names of your private gems on Ruby gems. Uh, Shopify tends to do it. And it's one of the means you can take. On the other hand, I will point out that it brings a bit of a risk because you expose your internal naming patterns to uh, outside. You basically make them public, right? If you name everything Shopify slash uh, someone that that is uh, that wants to get into your system, and Shopify is just an example, uh, will start coming up with name random names like I don't know Shopify. Uh, Kafka, Shopify, PG, whatever. And with a bit of luck, if you publish enough libraries, you might end up getting into someone's uh, system. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Headspace. So you've probably tried meditation before and it didn't work, right? Or maybe you felt like you were doing it wrong? If mental health is part of your self-care plan this year, you owe it to yourself to try Headspace. I was skeptical, but I signed up and was really excited to see options that fit what I cared about. They had an option for meditating while running, biking, and amazingly, meditations for when you were in pain. As someone who recently twisted their ankle while running, this felt really personalized to me and helped a lot. Headspace can even help you tune into the moment with focus music specially curated by Headspace Chief Music Officer, John Legend. Let's face it, last year was pretty stressful for all of us. What if this year you had something to help you be less stressed and handle the ups and downs that life throws at you? You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace's meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com rails. That's headspace.com rails for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Thank you to Headspace for supporting the show. Wow, that never occurred to me that you could do that, but that's actually a really fascinating way to try to get into a system. So thank you for sharing that. So Machak, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? Uh, a year ago, I was a bit disappointed with the, the idea of Ruby 3.0 and how the development was coming. I was invited with uh, with Piotr Solnik to join a summit in in Bristol where Ruby core committers would uh, would come and people that build off open source libraries for Ruby that they could interact and, and talk about many things right and one of the things that made me really sad at that point was uh, Matt's emphasis on keeping the backwards compatibility that in the end they they broke anyhow a bit uh, but now when I look into some of the amazing work that is happening, especially uh, a work of Samuel Williams related to something called uh, fiber schedulers, um, auto fibers, and in general into, into concurrency work that is happening for Ruby, as well as uh, JIT and uh, Koichi-san's uh, actors. I'm really positive about Ruby's future. We're not there yet. 3.0 isn't what it was supposed to be, in my opinion. Many of the things are more of a POCs and uh, early development, uh, things in early development. Uh, I think of a 3.0 as a 3.0 developer edition, you know? Uh, 
And when, when I talk with, with some of the core committers, even they say, okay, uh, we did it. We have things we wanted, but being able to use all of that power in production, well, probably 3.1. And I kind of feel the same, but it's, that's about Ruby and about Rails. Um, I don't use Rails a lot. Different is built with Rails, but I don't use the Rails way. So I, I tend to not to use Active Record uh, in an object relation up, relational mappings way, but rather as a just persistence layer. I don't like certain things because, in my opinion, they were designed for an MVP like building where you need to build something fast, validate the business. If it sticks, great. But then post MVP, I've seen too many systems that would just crumble because they were they were built and then they were developed further on with with this Rails approach. I think we align with, with solving on that. Uh, but in general, looking at some of the changes, some of the changes related to performance, to uh, front-facing features like Hotwire, I'm really optimistic about Ruby on Rails uh, future. I just don't see myself embracing uh, all of the things that Rails brings to the table. That makes total sense. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. So how can listeners follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find, uh, well, you can you can access my blog. I, I try to blog post like once a month. I'm gonna have a super interesting uh, article in, in a couple of weeks. I've got uh, a permission from Datadog security team to disclose one of my findings that was related to their ecosystem. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's, that's going to be really, a really good blog post. Uh, and you can always drop me an email. I'm really open to exchanging knowledge and ideas with everyone, especially now, since we don't have a way to, tr- to travel and to see each other face to face. That's great. Well, we will link everything up in the show notes. Listeners, definitely check out his blog. It has some really fantastic articles, especially now that we have a special preview into one that's upcoming. Thank you so much for guesting on the show and providing so much secure ecosystem. Thank you. Have a great day and stay safe. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review and thank you for listening.